All right, go ahead for the five-second count. Five-second countdown? All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Revelation. Let's begin uh, with an invocation, a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we are in the midst of the seven letters to the seven churches, which, of course, as we've discussed at the start of each one of these sessions on the seven letters, the seven letters to the seven churches, also the sevenfold letter to the sevenfold church. So it's not as though the church in Thyatira, as we'll see today, gets its letter and simply ignores the letters to the rest of the churches. It's not as if the church in Thyatira gets its letter and ignores the rest of Revelation. We ought to see these things as a unit, see these things as a whole. Of course, the specific historical and geographical and cultural circumstances of each congregation are uh, given in the letter itself, and, and the instructions are in that respect unique to them. But more broadly, this is to be received by all the churches of the first century and the entire church at large. So these things are profitable for us, and we need to consider how they are heard as, as best we can in the first century, get that clear, and then see how it is that they apply to us as well. At the very end of last week, uh, we did mention the uh, hidden manna and the white stone with a new name written on the stone um, that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is chapter 2, verse 17. And it was mentioned, and in fact, we, we found the source of this, that it is actually the Lutheran Study Bible, uh, the study note on 2.17, where it indicates that the white stones uh, in the ancient world, it says uh, special pebbles were sometimes used as admission tickets to banquets. So there, there's the study Bible's best guess as to what this is in reference to. And again, we've talked about all of these, all of these rewards that Christ promises his faithful church at the end. These are given to all of us. These are given to the whole church. And there's a now and not yet reality as we've seen to these gifts. So if, if this is right, that this, this white stone with, with your name on it is indeed a kind of ticket into the banquet, then you have that banquet in earlier in that same verse being the hidden manna. And of course, that would then, that would then tie in quite nicely with baptism, where you are baptized, you are given the white stone, you are given the ticket of entry into the great feast, the Lord's Supper, where we receive Christ as our hidden manna. And of course, you have John chapter 6, all about this, uh, where Jesus himself is teaching that he is the true manna that comes from above, and the food that he gives for the life of the world is his flesh and his blood. All right, well, I simply wanted to tie that back together, and then we move forward into chapter 2, verse 18, and uh, the church in Thyatira. 
Now, as I have been doing throughout and will continue to endeavor to do, here is Brighton's quick summary on the city of Thyatira. This city in Lydia in Asia Minor was situated on the Lycus River between Pergamum and Sardis, founded by Macedonians. Thyatira was taken over by the Romans in 190 BC. At first it was a city of the kingdom of Pergamum, but later it became part of the province of Asia. It was noted for its guild of dyers and the dyeing of purple cloth, and in general as a commercial center. Acts chapter 16 verses 14 through 15 notes that Lydia, a seller of purple cloth who was converted to Christianity by Paul at Philippi, had originally come from Thyatira. The city was not known for its religious life, though it did have temples dedicated to Artemis and Apollo, the sun god, Tyrimnos, the patron god of the city, was identified with Apollo. The cult of emperor worship also appears not to have been of great influence in city life. Now, one theme that we have seen throughout each of these letters present in each of these cities is at least what to us as Americans with the separation between church and state, which in some respects kind of serves, uh, what, what we can see is that there's emperor worship, there's worship of what we would call the state or the government, and then there's all this other worship of the, of the Roman and Greek, uh, the pagan gods. So there's this false religion, this false worship of false gods, this paganism, and then there's this false religion, this false worship of the emperor of government. Okay, and that's very important, I think, even to see throughout these introductory uh, epistles, because when we get to uh, the revelation of the two beasts, when we get to the revelation of the two beasts and we go after their identity, this later in Revelation, we're going to see that the identity of these two beasts fits perfectly with the worship of government and the cult of the emperor on the one hand, that's one beast, and the other being uh, paganism inside and outside of the church, false religion. Okay, so we'll look at these two beasts and, and we'll see that. But we do want to note that that's, um, that's already present here in these letters and in, in the actual geographic of the, of the cities listed here. All right, into the text we go, chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, recall with me once more that this takes us back to chapter 1, and to the vision of the one who is both like the Son of Man and like the Ancient of Days. So once more, we have this kind of visual organizational effect going on in Revelation, which is just so common to Revelation. When we get to the throne room, for example, I've, I've said this before, I'll have to say it over and over because this is simply how you remember the organizational structure of Revelation. When we get to the throne room, the seven seals and what's revealed flow from the throne room and lead back to the throne room. Same with the seven trumpets. 
Same with the seven censers. They all flow from the heavenly throne room and lead back to the heavenly throne room. Now, the very same thing is going on here at the beginning of Revelation, where the governing visual is the revelation of this one who is like the Son of Man, and yet in seeing him, one also sees the Ancient of Days. Remember when we looked at that from Daniel. In other words, to see the Son is to see the Father. And precisely in the way that he is described, then this is disseminated down to the introductions of each of these letters, showing us that each of these letters, the, the content and the one speaking, is this one who is like the Son of Man. All right? So again, just to put it even more simply, the whole thing is Christ-centered. And each one of these letters is spoken by Christ and is completely centered on Christ revealed in glory as the one like the Son of Man. So this mention of his eyes as flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze, of course, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 14, there you see specifically his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze. Okay, just a reminder there so that we keep this, this sort of visual framework or organizational structure in our mind. Verse 19, I know your works, your love, and your faith, and your service, and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Okay, so here Christ mentions, let's see, one, two, three, four, five different factors. Their works, their love, their faith, their service, and their patient endurance, which, um, by the way, the same uh, word, the same concept that comes up in our gospel today, those of you who have joined us for divine service, where um, Jesus simply tells his apostles, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so here he mentions their endurance, their patient endurance. And their latter works exceed the first. So this is an exemplary church in that their good works are growing. Um, if you recall all the way back in Ephesus, Ephesus seems to have taken the opposite move. Ephesus has lost its first love. I have this against you, he writes in uh, chapter 2, verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So here's a church that's headed the, the wrong direction. It needs to be called back. And in Thyatira, we have a church headed in the right direction. Your, your latter works exceed the first. So this is high praise and compliment. And then verse 20 comes the adjustment the Lord wants them to make. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, where biblically does, do we find Jezebel? She is the wicked queen of Ahab. First and second kings is where she shows up. You remember how she uh, persecutes Elijah in particular, um, to, the, to the point where Elijah is driven to the cave wishing that he would just die, saying, I'm the only one, I'm the only one left. That was Jezebel's doing. And so, so Jezebel becomes iconic of uh, the, the wicked woman, the Eve in her fallen state, uh, the, the persecutor of the prophets of God. And so she is uh, brought up here so that um, whatever whatever this woman or 
this group in Thyatira, again, because of the symbolic nature, it may or may not be that she's an actual woman. Um, it may or may not be the case that this group of folks is led by a woman. That seems to be the case. But be that as it, as it may, Jezebel is the, is the word for her, that the word for this group that the Lord uses. So I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, back in the letter to Ephesus, Jesus commends the Ephesian church for their hatred of the Nicolaitans, for their hatred of these false teachers. Here, he criticizes the Thyatirans for their tolerance of a false teacher. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, again, we, when you just look at, at what the symptoms of this, dark, of this spiritual darkness are, you see idolatry and sexual immorality. The same themes that you see in the Nicolaitans mentioned in the letter to Ephesus and also the letter to Pergamum, and the same symptoms you see in the letter of Pergamum when it is brought, uh, the teaching of Balaam, the Balaamites is brought up. So in other words, let's, let's put this together, whether it's the Nicolaitans, whether it's the Balaamites, or whether it's Jezebel and the Jezebelites, they're all essentially doing the same thing, leading the people of God to participate in the pagan worship around them. Does that make sense? So it really simplifies things. You kind of have these different flavors attached. Nicolaitans, we talked about the wordplay there, the overcomers, the victors, um, the, the Balaamites and, and the specific sin of Balaam in the Old Testament and the, the misleading and deceit. And then Jezebel here, um, seducing, teaching and seducing my servants, Jesus says, to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, this is really a stunning line because you, I don't believe you see anything like this with either the Nicolaitans or the Balaamites. But here you do with Jezebel. It's very interesting. Look what he says next. I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So even though our Lord in himself is completely intolerant of error, intolerant of the adultery, the idolatry, the sexual immorality, it's all one, he's patient and he gives time to repent. That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing for us individually and personally. We can think of many instances where the Lord has been patient with us, long-suffering with us, and he's given us time to, to finally get things sorted out, one thing or another. And here in a, in a sort of corporate way, or at least in reference to this woman and, and the group of her followers, um, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So when you refuse to repent, then the Lord has no choice but to punish, and so that's precisely what comes next. Verse 22 Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, 
And that sickbed can also be a, a beer, a, a funeral beer. I mean, this is, a, this is sickness unto death. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Now, again, you know, this is, this is largely poetic imagery, so I don't think we're thinking of literal children here. I think we're thinking of children being those who follow after her, um, as well as those who are seduced by her. And so, look, the Lord is, the Lord is saying, I gave her time to repent. She hasn't repented. Now I'm giving all who are connected with her time to repent. But if you don't repent, then you're going to be thrown into great tribulation and uh, her children are going to be struck dead. The Lord continues, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. (laughs) That word for mind is translated because it's actually kidneys and heart. But the, the kidneys are the source of the, uh, the emotions, really, rather. Um, so it's not, a, it's not a bad translation in English, I don't think, but um, it is interesting how the language is different. I am he who searches mind and heart. That does get to the sense of it. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of, the, of you in Thyatira, I mean, I guess I should pause and say, isn't that exactly how the, how the Athanasian Creed ends? Those who are good will rise to eternal life. Those who have done evil will rise to eternal death. And, and here he simply says, I will, I will give each of you according to your works. All right, verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Okay, so he really has nothing against those who, you know, again, they've been doing the works, love, faith, service, patient endurance. He has nothing against them. He just has that they tolerate this woman Jezebel. And then, and then his anger is directed at those, those who are being seduced by Jezebel and following her. But those who are not... He basically says, that's it. My only problem with you is you tolerate it. Okay? Otherwise, I don't have any issue with you. I don't lay on you another burden. Now, the deep things of Satan here, again, a bit mysterious, but two points can be made on this. The deep things of Satan, probably they're not running around calling it that. Probably they're not saying, hey, let me teach you the deep things of Satan. Probably this is a play on the kind of Gnosticism that's driving uh, this sexual immorality. In, in the uh, first and second centuries, um, as well as, frankly, I mean, before and to, an, to a degree after, part of Gnosticism, one way to go with Gnosticism is the flesh, the material is bad. All that matters is your soul. Right? And they would call this the deep knowledge, and only those who were enlightened could receive this deeper knowledge. You know, this is the essence of Gnosticism. Uh, gnosis, that you would receive the, the knowledge. And the deep or hidden knowledge would be that the flesh, the body, is utterly corrupt. We're to be set free from the body eternally. And since the body is utterly corrupt and bound to sins, let the body sin away. Right? That's essentially the teaching here. 
I don't think that this is exactly what St. Paul is up against, but close enough when he writes, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. Shall we give rein to the flesh and let the body do whatever the body wants to do? By no means. We should crucify it and put it to death. Okay, so then um, this, might, this might be the first point of what we would say regarding the deep things of Satan. The second thing that we would see is that throughout these epistles, we have a variety of references to Satan, some more subtle and some more explicit. An example of the subtle might be those who call themselves apostles and are not. They're not apostles of Jesus, therefore they're apostles of Satan. They're false apostles, like we saw in, uh, Revelation, in Ephesus, the letter to Ephesus. The other is explicit references to Satan behind all of these things. Um, the first of which we see in the letter to Smyrna, where um, we recall the synagogue of Satan, that language, and behold, the devil is about to throw you, some of you into prison. And then in the letter to Pergamum, we have where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. And then um, here, of course, in Thyatira, the deep things of Satan. As I mentioned last week, I'll mention again here that, that, again, it's not as if these people are going around saying, hey, let's all believe in the deep things of Satan, or let's go worship at the synagogue of Satan, or let's bow down before the throne of Satan. Okay. What is our Lord Jesus teaching these churches to do? To exegete, to interpret what they see to exegete and interpret their lives within the world, and then to see what these symbols and signs actually mean. Okay. All right, that's just not uh, Sue or Samantha or whoever the prophetess's name happened to be. That is Jezebel. Behind Jezebel is Satan. These aren't just Jews who happen to not like us politically. This is the synagogue of Satan. Satan is behind their actions. Okay. So this accords beautifully with what St. Paul tells us, that our, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of darkness. So part of Revelation is teaching us to interpret that what we see around us is flesh and blood and, and earthly, worldly institutions, what we want to see and identify behind this is the power of Satan manifesting itself in the types and forms in which Satan has always manifested himself from the Old Testament all the way through the New. Make sense? Okay. So we want to begin to interpret our lives and the things around us theologically. That's the take-home point. All right, so then that takes us to verse 25. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, let's unpack this just a little bit. As in all the letters, the one who conquers is the one who repents and retains faith in Jesus Christ. In this case, specified by the language of who keeps my works until the end. Then we have two promises. The first is authority over the nations to rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. What's going on here? Well, first of all, we'll note that this language comes from the second psalm. And in fact, in just a minute, we'll go and take a, take a peek at that. But what we have here is this rather astonishing teaching that as Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, and as he reigns over all the nations of the earth, he also gives us Christians to reign with him, to share and participate in that very same authority over all the heavens and the earth that he himself has been given. This is an incredible thing, but it's, it's this verse and, and others that we've seen, but, but maybe this verse stronger than the others that really shows us what it meant in chapter 1, where Jesus is described as King of kings and Lord of lords. Who are those lords? Who are those kings, according to Revelation, who rule with Jesus in all authority? Christians. Christians. I mean, this is a stunning thing. If our Lord didn't teach us this and promise this and give this to us, we'd never believe it. Now, another point to be made is simply in light of the, the later chapter in Revelation where the thousand-year reign comes up, important to realize that Jesus is already reigning, that Jesus already has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he promises us that as we abide in that, we share in that reign and authority now, and just like all the other promises, not yet there is going to be the revelation of the sons of light where we will be shown to reign with Jesus and we will reign with him. Again, this, this reigning language comes all the way from Genesis chapter 1 where God gives uh, Adam and Eve dominion. Think of the word dominos. Lordship. Reign over the earth. That reign over the earth has been given back to us in Christ Jesus and has been extended even unto the heavens. Now we'd have to go into Hebrews chapter 1 to get that theology. I want to take us in another direction on another field trip, so I commend that to you if that's of interest. All right, so maybe for the time being then, let's just jump back to Psalm 2 and take a look at where this language comes from where our Lord is drawing from. And probably in this day and age, with all of the political upheaval in the West, I just 
you know, so much of the blatant lawlessness uh, and anti-authoritarianism that we've seen. This is, uh, this is probably a very good psalm for us to pray on repeat. So Psalm 2, and I'll just, it's a shorter one, I'll just read through it. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, look how interesting this play is that Jesus is doing in Revelation, in, in Revelation chapter 2 that we just covered versus what's going on here. Okay, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Who are they raging against? God. And who are they plotting in vain against? God. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Now who are the king, in Psalm 2, who are the kings of the earth and the rulers? The wicked kings of the world. Who are they in Revelation? Us. You see the transformation that's taken place? Okay. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Now here we would see the Father and against his anointed, literally his Messiah. Against the Lord and against his Messiah. That's the, that's the kings of the earth and the rulers. They want to wage war against the Lord and his Messiah. And they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What on earth does that mean? We do not recognize their authority. We do not recognize God or his authority. We do not recognize Christ or his reign. Full, lawless rebellion. Now we get Rick Warren's favorite verse. In one of his, verse, in one of his books, he quotes this as if to say God has a sense of humor. <laughs> kind of missed the point, Rick. Uh, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. All right, it's not exactly the verse I'd point to for the Lord having a sense of humor. This is, this is a, a bitter, derisive laugh of him who sits in the heavens laughing, the Lord holding the kings of the earth and the rulers in derision. Let's carry on. Verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, who here is speaking? The Father. And whom is he speaking of? The Son. So the Father says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And of course, you can think of the, the complete culmination of those words of God when Jesus is on Zion, on the holy hill, crowned in thorns, lifted on the throne of the cross. That's the ultimate thing to which this prophecy points. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is Christ and him crucified as our king. And this is precisely the way in which he destroys the, the principalities and powers of this world who are arrayed against him. He doesn't come down with his angelic host and wipe everybody out. He defeats them through the cross. That's why, in the sense, the, the cross is the most terrifying, 
awe-inspiring, fear-filled, powerful image in all of heaven and all of earth. Because it defeats all other powers, and it does so ironically in perfect weakness. It is precisely when Jesus bows his head in death and breathes his last in this complete and utter weakness is the full omnipotence and strength of God made manifest. And all the kings of the earth, their power is subverted. What is their, what is their power? What, what can the kings of the earth do to you? The worst they can do to you is put you to death. But by his death on the cross, he has destroyed the power of death. He has literally just undone the power of the kings of the earth. So that when the early church Christians stood before the kings of the earth and they said, bend the knee, kiss the ring, worship me, deny Christ, the Christians could hardly help but laughing. No, I don't think so. All your power has been undone. He has destroyed your power by dying. You have the power of death. By his death, he has destroyed the power of death. I'm, I'm not afraid of you. Afraid of my Lord Jesus? Absolutely. In the most wonderful and blessed of all ways. You see? So Psalm 2 bespeaks these things, and Christ brings them to mind here then in Revelation 2. Now, we haven't yet got to the point, so let's motor right along. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. All right, what's going on? The father says to the son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. Jesus confirms this after his death and resurrection. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. My Father has, has made the nations my heritage. This begottenness, then, is reference to the incarnation, to the uniqueness of the incarnation. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. That's the coming of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. Ask of me, the Father says, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Indeed, the Lord asks. Remember what Satan does? He holds out that false promise. Worship me and I'll give you all of this. Worship me and Psalm 2 will be fulfilled for you right now. Ha. So the Lord has his faith in his Father. And then look at this. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. Now remember, these are the, these are the principalities and powers of the world driven on by Satan and his demonic hordes that are in rebellion against God. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And again, when precisely does Christ do this? On the cross. And really the victory and the glory that he brings on at his second coming, the, the final, it's no different than this victory and power of the cross. That's why he may raise the dead. That's why he may judge all people. Because he has suffered it. He has done it. He has overturned all other power and authority. So that's where the language comes from that we see in, uh, in Revelation um, chapter 2, verse 26. The one who conquers and keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. That's you and I. And he, you and I, will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So we overcome all the powers of the earth that are contrary to Christ. 
All right, verse 10 of uh, Psalm 2, let's just finish it out. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. And this is beautiful because you can see here, of course, the rulers of the earth like being called to repentance by this psalm and to faithful reign. That's true. Um, But you can also see here the same kings and rulers referenced in Revelation, that is, us Christians. The others have been been broken with a rod of iron and dashed into pieces. Who remains? We who have been faithful to the Son. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Look at the fear and the trembling at the almighty and awesome power of God, of Christ and Him crucified. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. If I had to, if I think if I had to come up with an enti- a Bible verse that entirely sums up all seven of these epistles, it would be just this. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. In other words, love Jesus, not Satan. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. All right, so what's being promised to the church, the sevenfold church, what's being promised to us as Christians is precisely the fulfillment of this psalm and our own participation in it. So far, so good. All right, now let's do, let's flip back to Revelation 2. And let's look at the second promise and blessing that Christ gives. That is verse 28 of chapter 2. Jesus says, And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, what Jesus says, the Holy Spirit says. And what the Holy Spirit says, Jesus says. And you also notice the plural here. It starts written to one church in singular. It ends written to the church's plural. That is, this is written to the church in Thyatira, singular. This is written to all of the churches, plural, the sevenfold church, plural. Okay, Um, now back to this morning star bit. Later on in Revelation, the morning star is identified for us uh, as Christ Jesus himself. So in the same way we've seen the hidden manna be Christ Jesus himself, um, in the same way we've seen uh, the crown of life be in reference to Jesus himself, and in the same way we've seen, um, what else would it be? Yeah, well, I'm not, lo- I'm not finding it in... Oh yeah, the tree of life, that's what it is. In the same way the tree of life is in reference to Jesus. All these things are in reference to Jesus, so the morning star is also in reference to Jesus. In other words, we might put it this way, the heaven of heaven is Jesus himself. The reward of all rewards is Jesus himself. And that's a recurrent theme throughout each of these, um, each of these epistles. Now I'd like to do a little more with you on... Uh, this morning star and this concept where it comes from because I find it absolutely fascinating. But I want to make sure I haven't wearied you with our other field trip back into... Are we okay? All right, then let's field trip away one more time because this to me is, is absolutely fascinating. It's something um, I've, I've only recently conceived of thanks to uh, John Chrysostom. All right, how best to do this? 
Let's start with Chrysostom's Paschal Homily. This will be familiar to you if you've been at our Easter Vigil. Okay? It's short. It's thoroughly wonderful. I'll read slash preach it to you right now. It'll, it'll be better than my sermon later. <laughs> uh, but but here, um, here I'll point out the specific verse that Christosome uses or misuses. And then that'll launch us back into Isaiah to find out, and that'll launch us forward then into Revelation to have this fuller understanding. All right, ready? Here's Chrysostom. Is there anyone who is a devout lover of God? Let them enjoy this beautiful, bright festival. Remember, Easter Vigil. Is there anyone who is a grateful servant? Let them rejoice and enter into the joy of their Lord. Are there any weary with fasting? Let them now receive their wages. If any have toiled from the first hour, let them receive their due reward. If any have come after the third hour, let him with gratitude join the feast. And he that arrived after the sixth hour, let him not doubt, for he too shall sustain no loss. And if any delayed until the ninth hour, let him not hesitate, but let him come too. And he who arrived only at the eleventh hour, let him not be afraid by reason of this delay. For the Lord is gracious and receives the last even as the first. He gives rest to him that comes at the eleventh hour as well as to him that toiled from the first. To this one he gives and upon another he bestows. He accepts the works as he greets the endeavor, the deed he honors and the intention he commends. Let us all enter into the joy of the Lord. First and last alike, receive your reward. Rich and poor, rejoice together. Sober and slothful, celebrate the day. You that have kept the fast and you that have not, rejoice today, for the table is richly laden. Feast royally on it. The calf is a fatted one. Let no one go away hungry. Partake all of the cup of faith. Enjoy all the riches of his goodness. Let no one grieve at his poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one mourn that he has fallen again and again, for forgiveness has risen from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the death of our Savior has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. He destroyed death when he descended into it. He put it into an uproar, even as he tasted of his flesh. Isaiah foretold this when he said, You, O death, have been troubled by encountering him below. Okay, stop there. I hate to do that because it's such a beautiful preaching. But, wait a minute. Isaiah foretold this when he said, You, O death, have been troubled by encountering him below? Let's take a look at Isaiah and see who actually it is who is encountered below. Let's see if, if uh, Chrysostom has rightly interpreted this or wrongly interpreted this or in what way. Okay, So we're going to go to Isaiah in just a minute. Let me simply finish because it's too beautiful not to. We're almost done. Death was in an uproar because it was done away with. It was in an uproar because it is mocked. It was in an uproar for it is destroyed. It is in an uproar for it is annihilated. It is in an uproar for it is now made captive. Death took a body and discovered God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was overcome by what it did not see. 
O death, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy victory? Christ is risen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having been raised from the dead, is become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. All right, so a beautiful homily. Hope you enjoy. Um, to even preach a homily half that good would be my goal. And you're thinking to yourself, to preach a homily even half that short would be our goal. <laughs> uh, but let's, um, let's flip back to Isaiah 14, and let's take a look at this, because this is fascinating. All right, Isaiah chapter 14, and let's, uh, let's simply look at um, chapter 14, verse 3. Now, if you have the, the Lutheran Study Bible, the heading reads, Israel, Israel's remnant taunts Babylon. Okay, that gives us the historical context. But again, as Jesus says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have life. It is these that speak of me. And so in this text, we're going to be looking for Jesus, or, or at least how these things pertain toward Jesus. All right? Now, verse 3. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Now, Babylon came down and oppressed the people, destroyed the temple, all of this. So who do you think is behind the king of Babylon? Satan. Absolutely. Okay, so this is, this is, by the way, is where uh, we get a lot of our data, uh, our biblical data on who Satan was or what this whole Satan guy is about. All right? So, continuing with verse 4. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. So just as they mock the king of Babylon, we will mock Satan. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. It's a perfect description of what Satan does, causing nations to war against nations, nations to war against God. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. You see, the, the earth has, uh, has healed from the pillaging of Satan. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. Now again, this is the idea, this is at least classically understood, as Satan being, as a reference to Satan being cast into the lake of fire, as we'll see, forever. Okay. So shale beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. Isn't that a terrifying image? All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. 
you have become like us. I mean, what a fate, what a fate for the satanic being who in all his pride and pomp and glory becomes as weak as the condemned, broken kings of the earth. You too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of man. Now look at this. That's like, you can see how that's referenced to Satan, or at least is very frequently taken as such. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Now, notice the, notice the similarity between day star and morning star. Day star here in Isaiah 14 and morning star in Revelation 2. How you are cut to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All right, well, that suffices for our purposes. You can see that the taunt continues. And this has long been read not merely as a taunt against the king of Babylon, but as a taunt against Satan. So Satan's the subject. Now, this is the interesting part, okay? Notice the language. Well, first of all, notice how Chrysostom says, he, Christ, destroyed death when he descended into it. Okay? That is, when he descended into Sheol. He put it into an uproar even as it tasted of his flesh. Isaiah foretold this when he said, well, now where does Isaiah foretell this? What is Chrysostom thinking of? Probably, the, and, and so let's see what Chrysostom says. You, O death, have been troubled by encountering him below. And then we have all this business about death being an uproar um, because it's mocked, destroyed, annihilated, etc. Okay. Probably the closest reference to this is chapter 14 of Isaiah, verse 9. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. All right, now this is great. Either, either Chrysostom, Chrysostom has it all wrong and has misread this verse that really applies to Satan and has applies it, applied it to Christ, or Chrysostom has it more right than I myself or probably most people who have thought about this really understand. And that is to understand it particularly as this, that if you read Isaiah 14 as we have just done, you see Satan desiring to be Christ, desiring to be the Messiah, desiring the very things that Christ is and has, to be seated with the Most High. So who is, then, who is then the double referent of this? Well, the first referent is Satan and how he's fallen. But insofar as he is trying to be the Messiah, 
The second referent is Christ. All these things that Satan is not, and in fact has not, Christ is and has. So what you see in the very figure, I think this is the brilliance, what you see in the very figure of Satan is an anti-Messiah. And thus, by reverse, you see the Messiah. So I think this is, I think this is incredible, because not only because of the reference here um, to, to Sheol being stirred up to meet you when you come, but also considering the closeness between, and here's, I think, really the connection to Revelation uh, 2, the closeness between what Satan is called, O Daystar, Son of Dawn, that title properly refers to Christ. He is the day star. He is the true son of dawn. What, Christ, what Satan attempted to be and is not, Christ has received and is. Okay, well, that's the field trip. And I think the mileage to be made of it, frankly, is looking at Satan insofar as he is a false messiah ends up preaching and proclaiming Christ as a precise antitype of him. In other words, to see Satan, if you're hip to this, to see Satan is by contrast to see Christ. Okay. Yeah, well, I think it's wonderful. I hope you do too. So, uh, back to 28. And I will give him the morning star. Christ saying, I will give unto the Christian who conquers, who is faithful unto the end. I will give him myself. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me um, pause there with a minute or two left in class. We'll hit Sardis next week. I have no intention of going on quite so many field trips, so we should make much better speed next week in, through these letters. Um, are there any questions, any comments, uh, anything that I missed that you would like to add? All right, very good. Oh, yes, there's one up front here. Can we, can we run a microphone to you very quickly? What comes to mind is the uh, uh, reference in, in uh, the Garden, the Garden of Eden, where Satan wishes to usurp God's power through his uh, temptation of, of, of uh, Adam and Eve. I don't know, it's maybe a simplistic uh, thing there, but I'm, I'm, it is, it's an ongoing competition. <laughs> Opposition right. is a better word. Right. And, and if, uh, if Isaiah 14 does in fact bespeak the, the sin of Satan, that he thought equality with God a thing to be grasped, then he has Adam and Eve sin in his image. You see? Just as he sins, so he leads them to sin, so that we're truly his children by sin. What, is, what does he say? you shall be like God. Yeah, so that we sin precisely in his image, precisely in the way. So, I mean, Satan's a nasty creature because, I mean, and you just, I thoroughly enjoy this the more I get to think about it and see it in the scriptures. Satan is so nasty that he wants, you know, let us make man in our image. Satan says, great, every time you look at the man, he's not going to be in your image, he'll be in mine. And you'll remember that just as I aspired to be like God, they, they did too. I mean, that's nasty, nasty stuff. And now you see why the Lord is so thoroughly, thoroughly 
uh, well, he responds in kind. Let's put it that way. Oh, you overcame by a tree? I'll overcome you by a tree. Oh, you brought down man for a woman? I'm going to bring back man from a woman. Oh, you, you thought that you, you would make man sin by wanting to become God? I, God, will become man. I mean, it's just, it is just a one by one by one by one smackdown uh, of every, everything the devil has done to really insult and annoy God. Um, God gives, it, gives and dishes it right back. It's beautiful. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, the Lord be with you. Stuff. That means that you know, the tolerance, uh, I'll just say.